living authentically is giving me life and it costs me, but I'm absolutely willing to pay that price. You're listening to Make Some Noise Podcast, episode number 510 with guest Laura Cathcart-Robbins. Welcome to Make Some Noise Podcast, your guide for strategies, tools, and insight to empower yourself. I'm your host, Andrea Owen, global speaker, entrepreneur, life coach since 2007, and author of three books that have been translated into 18 languages and are available in 22 countries. Each week, I'll bring you a guest or a lesson that will help you maximize unshakable confidence, master resilience, and make some noise in your life. You ready? Let's go. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the show. Thank you so much for joining me. As usual, I'm so grateful and glad that you're here. Laura Cathcart Robbins is back on the show for the third time. Clearly, I just adore her and think she's amazing and want you to hear her stories and hear about all the fascinating things that she does and all of her wisdom. And she's a new book coming out. So that's awesome. I read it. It's really great. And I I think that you will really like it. So before we get into that, I have a couple of important announcements. The first one is that I'm doing a survey for the podcast. So if you listen regularly, your feedback is so important to me. It is my top priority. This show is for you. And I want to make sure that I'm bringing you things. And, And as well as not just you know, topics and guests, but also the way that I'm delivering it. So if you head over to andreaowen.com slash survey, that link is also in the show notes. Some quick questions. It'll take you maybe 10 minutes. Not even all of the questions are mandatory. So even just answer the ones that are important to you, skip the rest. And if you want to be entered in a drawing to win some personalized signed copies of my books, you just need to leave your email address at the very bottom. You don't have to. It can be totally anonymous. But your feedback is, I mean, I just cannot, I cannot <laughs> emphasize how much it matters to me. So thank you for doing that. And thank you for those of you that have have already filled it out. We're already looking at the numbers to see which direction we're going to go this year for the show. The second thing is that Fairly soon, we are going to be opening up registration for the Daring Way online group. So this is a six-week group. We're going to meet twice a week in the evenings on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And the Daring Way is the methodology I am trained and certified in with Brene, from Brene Brown's work. It is all about shame resilience, and it covers things like vulnerability and connection and trust and going out there and doing really hard things. And when you get your ass kicked from doing the hard things, because it's going to happen, how do you recover from that? Like, how do you pick yourself back up when you have just like gone out there and bared your soul or tried something new and it didn't work out? Because sometimes that happens. How do we how do we build that resilience and and keep moving forward? It also emphasizes your values and your friendships with others. And in a group setting, it's really amazingly beautiful. And I have to cap it at a certain amount of women. I can't just open it up to to everyone. It's part of the guidelines as a facilitator. So head on over to andreaowen.com slash retreat. It is the retreat page because I'm also offering a retreat, but I just put y'all on one cozy little list 
for the people who want to be notified first, because there is going to be an early bird price on that, only for people who are on that particular first notification waiting list. Okay? And I think that's it for the announcements. Let me tell you about Laura for those of you who who are new to her work. Laura Cathcart Robbins is the host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room, which, P.S., I've been a guest on twice. And she's the author of the forthcoming memoir, Stash. She has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee and is credited for creating the Buckley School's nationally recognized Committee on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice. You can find out more about Laura on her website, or you can look for her on Facebook, on Instagram, or follow her on Twitter. So without further ado, here is Laura. Laura, thank you so much for being here again. Yes, Andrea, my favorite place to be. <laughs> oh, good. I was, yes. I was expecting that. Um, I have been so looking forward to this conversation. And for those of you that are new to Laura, I'm going to pop the link in the show notes for the previous two. Uh, mm. We haven't talked about your sobriety and recovery like as a podcast episode. No, we haven't. Yeah. So I'm I'm kind of glad that we saved it for when you have this amazing book coming out. So so welcome back and it's been a minute since you were on and I I mean first of all, congratulations on this beautiful oh, thank book. Thank you. Thank you. I think I I mean I'm always excited when someone especially has their first book come out, but it's like a memoir as someone who's you know in the middle of writing my memoir but has also written 3 Yeah prescriptive books. Like I don't mean yes. to be dismissive towards that genre, but memoir, I mean, you are like laying your heart out and just like mm -hmm. presenting it to the world. Thank you for that. Memoir is, I've always just written, you know, just writing stories and that kind of thing. And memoir is the most natural thing for me to write. Okay. You know, I, I had some success with personal essays um, that I had a few published in the HuffPo personal essay section. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> and, Which you talked about in other yes, episodes. Yeah. And that seems to just be like, like the memoir that I wrote, which is Stash, feels like almost a collection of personal essays. It just seems to be okay. the easiest thing for me to write. I'm okay. so in admiration of your prescriptive books. Like, and I love Make Some Noise. It might be one of oh, my favorite you. books. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. It's, yeah, it's, it's my favorite too. And it's it's funny how like the tables turn. Like I'm in admiration of people who can write memoirs so beautifully, and and what I make up is so easily. And I know there's a lot of uh, aspiring writers and writers that listen to the show, and so so thank you everyone for bearing with us as we gush over each other's yes. writing abilities and careers. But let me let me back up and do a little bit of a meta uh, for people understand that. And maybe Laura, you might not know this, but my podcast I'm doing themes starting in 2022. We did like a therapy theme and women's health theme, and now we're on recovery. And I wanted to get people on who had struggled with addictions in all kinds of different areas of their life. And I thought before I got your book, I thought you were only like an alcoholic, like drinking was just your thing. <laughs> yeah. It's funny how like we make up these stories without knowing people's actual story. And so the, the book opens kind of with like a snapshot of you struggling, you know, just that, that and if anyone can understand this, like that feeling of, well, I want you to describe it of like 
Having not enough (laughs) of what you need. Yeah. Thank, Thank you for that setup. It's, I think of this as the disease of not enough. <laughs> it mm-hmm. is. And, and, you know, whether or not it's an actual disease is debatable for me. I believe that it is, but okay. So the way that my life looked at the time that you're talking about was that I was the PTA president at the school yeah. where my two young boys went. I was in a really high profile marriage and I was someone who you know, through dinner parties and went to tennis lessons on Tuesdays with, you know, whoever. I had a personal shopper at Barney's, which doesn't exist anymore. So sad about that. <laughs> um, so for those of you who don't know, it was a really high-end retail store, um, mm-hmm. one in LA. It's like and a Saks Fifth Avenue or yeah, anything Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and so my life looked very big and glamorous and I was always presenting as perfect or as near perfect as I possibly could. Mm -hmm. The effort that that took, took a tremendous toll on me. And, And the other thing was that I was doing all this, you know, for everyone else, I thought I'm putting that in air quotes, because you can't see me, but I I thought I was doing it for everyone else because I wanted to show up for my kids school and show up for my then husband and show up for my kids. And the truth was that I was just enduring my life. Um, I was mm-hmm. not, I was existing, but not living. And it wasn't a, it wasn't a fun existence. Um, my only respite from this was sleep. I loved going to sleep. And that's when I would take pills at the end of the day, after I'd fulfilled all my motherly PTA mom, wifely mm-hmm. duties. I could look forward to taking Ambien was the thing that I took. And this is no shade on Ambien. Um, it's actually probably a very good drug. Not for me, uh-huh. though. And I would take Ambien and wash it down with with vodka. Um, usually, that's usually what I would sneak up and hide in the rain boots in my closet. And I would um, then go to sleep in this beautiful, dreamy, technicolors, like most glorious sleep you can imagine. Mm-hmm. And that's where I wanted to live. Uh, what what happened to me was the the my solution, as we say, became my problem. My solution mm-hmm. to, to living in an authentic life was to knock myself out at the end of the day and have like a little mini break from 11 to eight in the, you know, 11 yeah. at night to eight in the morning. That's what I call it. I, I, I used to call it a mini vacation. Yeah. Yeah. Not when I was in it, but right. like, you know, when I had some distance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You call it a mini break. Yeah. That's how it felt. And so with, with, with the scene you're talking about, I have one pill left mm-hmm. and I know it's not enough. I know it's not enough and I'm in full withdrawal, which is a thing that I'm always afraid of. Uh, uh, Withdrawal, for those of you who don't know, is maybe like getting the worst flu you've ever gotten from from benzos anyway, which is the class of drug yeah. that Ambien falls under. Um, the worst flu and this obsession to get rid of it. Did you go through? Withdrawal? Yeah, I, you mean like the like when the I cycle? was an active codependent love addict? Yeah. Yes, when I was addicted to yeah. um, Booze? No, I never had the physical withdrawals, but I definitely had it with relationships. Yeah. And we talked about that. We talked about that on when you came on my podcast, which is fascinating to me that 
it doesn't even matter what it is, but you can still go through the exact same cycle. Mine I would be, be so curious to see the brain chemistry in that because yeah. I wasn't ingesting any drugs like you were, right. but it's just fascinating. Anyway, yeah. yeah, please continue. The anguish of that moment of realizing that I have one, one pill left, I don't have a refill coming up until the following week, and I was going to be in for a world of pain as soon as it was gone, and I still had to show up for that life that I created Mm -hmm. looking as close to perfect as possible. At the end, like that, the part that I write about in the book is 10 months that I write about. I call that the end. The end was just me trying to like almost not get high anymore. I just wanted to feel normal enough to go out and do my day. That was, that was the really painful part was that I had lost the ability to be normal to mm-hmm. have a normal response or a typical response to doing my kids homework with them or celebrating a win for them or i had to be loaded to do anything yeah. if i want it to be normal i want to back up a little bit and also kind of you know talk about like how how you got there cuz i have i have a lot of questions about that but yeah first just out of curiosity did did any at that point, like that moment that you're talking about where you have one pill left, you're already going through the withdrawals, you know you're not going to get a refill until the next week. You know that this week is going to be just hell. Did anyone know in your life at that point? Like, cause you I know you had you had confessed to your mom previously. Um, yeah, but not yet. Not at that point. Okay, not at that point. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. Um, no, no so one knew. Did your husband no one knew? You no. had done an excellent job yes. at covering it up. Yeah. Which is a job in and of itself. Girl, it's so a job in and of itself. And can I tell you that now that people are seeing, you know, this book, um, they're seeing my book on social media or like whatever, mm-hmm. and they're excited about it and understanding what it's about, people that were close to me are coming to me now and going, oh my God, I had no idea. I had no idea. I had no mm-hmm. idea. Yeah. How do you feel in those moments? How do I feel? I feel like, in a way, I kind of want to take care of them because they feel they they're coming to me pretty devastated mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. A lot of them are devastated that they they didn't know because because that meant that they there maybe they could have helped me um, right. during that that point. they missed the signs that mm-hmm. they missed the signs and you know at first I was kind of like smug about it like damn totally okay thank you because I was like am I the asshole who's like. The the shadow part of me is like, where's my Academy Award? Right, <laughs> right. Do you see what an amazing job I did? No, at first I was definitely like that. Like, hey, well, okay. you know, you yeah. didn't know, you didn't know that. For me, because people didn't know as I was going through this, I kept convincing myself that it must not be that bad. Right. Right. It's once people find out that it would be bad. And because I uh-huh. kept everybody, you know, kind of juggling the people in my life so that if it started, if they started to see my slip showing, they would go out, you know, to the outer rotation for a while. (laughs) And then, Mm -hmm. and then the people that were closest to me, it was such a balancing act. That was definitely a source of pride for me for a while. Was your body starting to break down? Like, did you have any other physical symptoms? Because I know the withdrawal symptoms are so painful, but just even even in the interim when you did have enough Ambien to fulfill what, you know, to feel normal, like were you having any other health problems? Like I don't, I don't know what the long-term health implications are. 
Yeah, I think the long-term health implications of being addicted to a benzo like I was are more neurological and and less having to do with, I mean, because I would boost my Ambien with Benadryl and booze, certainly down the road, I could have come into Mm -hmm. more complications. But no, I just, it was really just like brain zaps and memory loss and brownouts and that kind of thing, which are really debilitating and embarrassing. Oh my goodness. So embarrassing. But manageable for a while. But manageable for a while. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I was still working out um, three times a week. I played tennis Mm -hmm. twice a week. Physically, I I looked and felt, aside from the withdrawal, um, fine. Okay. Yeah. So, so I, I want to talk about, cause I know that there's people listening who, who don't struggle with any kind of addiction, yeah. but could probably relate to the lead up. So did you, did I gather it correctly that you weren't ever sure that you wanted to even be a mom? Yes, that is a hundred percent correct. I, yeah. When, you know, like when my friends were playing bridal and mom, you know, pushing baby dolls and strollers, I, I just never, I did it because they were doing it, but I never mm-hmm. really got it. I didn't yeah. really get why this should be something that would be fun to do. And it certainly or wasn't who aspire. I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Right. When I fell in love with my now ex-husband, I assumed that this would be something that he would want. So that I should also act like I wanted it. And I was 30 years old when we got married. It was mm-hmm. around the time that people really, like my friends were starting to have babies. And mm-hmm. I I was really afraid that I, because I got pregnant really quickly. And I was, I was afraid. I didn't like being pregnant either at all. That was just like some alien living in me that moved. It was, it freaked yeah. me out. It mm-hmm. wasn't difficult. But it was just weird to me. I didn't embrace it like all the the other mamas that I saw who yeah, love being pregnant. To me. Did you like being pregnant? I did. You did. But it's I also always wanted to be a mom. It's just mm. I, I said it's fascinating to me because I if I find it just so curious that they're and I'm so glad we live in a time now. I don't think so much our generation, but for sure millennials and Gen Z where it's becoming more acceptable for women to be out more outspoken of like, I've never wanted to have children. I'm going to choose to have a child-free life. And, uh, you know, my, my best friend, Amy Smith always knew she never wanted to be a mom. And so I've had these, because yes. I'm so curious. Cause I'm like, what is it like? So what I have, what I figured out, or at least I think what I feel of always wanting to be a mom and, and that feeling of the biological clock ticking, cause it is a real thing. Mm. She feels the exact opposite. Yeah. Like as much as I wanted to be a mother, she did not want to be a mother. <laughs> right. And and I've I've met women who I can't say, and there might be people listening who are raising their hand, but I can't say I've ever met a woman who always wanted to be a mom, but hated being pregnant. Unless there was some kind of problem or she was super sick or complicated. But okay, so you you weren't sure that you wanted to be a mom. You had a yeah. hard time, you know, embracing pregnancy. And then because I'm I'm trying to kind of connect the dots for the listener as to like. What brought on the 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 reach that you had to sleep and kind of have these like mini breaks from your life? So your marriage kind of started to be not as great as you hoped it would be. Yeah, I think what happened, I, two things happened after my first son was born. The moment he was born, I was obsessed with him. Mm-hmm. And I was blindsided by that. 
I mean, it's okay. a wonderful thing to be obsessed with your children. I didn't expect to be. And I, in fact, I was really afraid that I wouldn't be, but it was overwhelming. Like I was, mm-hmm. it was like the world went to black and there was a spotlight on him. And, <laughs> and no, he was, really. he was it for me. Like everything was about him. And then I think he was turning one when I found out I was pregnant with my second son. So what I felt like then was I just started to kind of pull away into my own world that was just me and, and you know, at first my one son and then both my sons. Mm-hmm. It it felt to me there was this very like urgent, probably really enmeshed kind of need I had to be with them to protect them. I knew nothing about postpartum anxiety or depression or any of that. Mm-hmm. So I was never diagnosed with anything, but I I would imagine that if I had seen somebody um, during that time and been honest with them about what was going on with me, they would have been worried that I had gone from having this very big world to only my children were my world. Okay. And the everything else that I did was to keep people from trying to take that little world away from me. So all of my workouts, all my tennis games, all my dinner parties were to show you that I had balance so that you wouldn't interfere with my world with my children. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, again, like you said earlier, this is what I know in hindsight. I had no Mm -hmm. idea of this then. Um, Everybody thought I was the best mom. I was super present. I threw the best birthday parties. We did crazy Halloween stuff. You know, I was Mm -hmm. a really, I was in it. But yeah, so my marriage took a backseat. I took a backseat and everything was about my kids. It's fascinating the lengths that we'll go to even unconsciously to protect our children. Yeah. Did you have any kind of, and and maybe this was in hindsight, of anxiety or mental health struggles before that period of your life? I'm sure, but Mm -hmm. I don't recall feeling anything the way that I, like I was completely unaware that this kind of nervous bubbling up of energy Mm -hmm. uh, that wouldn't go away was anxiety until much later in my life. Like after my kids were, maybe when I got sober, honestly. Yeah. Lots of lessons come into clarity. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing how that works. Which was which was terrible, but I don't remember having that, like growing up with that. I'm not saying it didn't happen. I just, I don't have a memory of that. Well, I think for many people kind of growing up and then having to have this kind of quote unquote grown up life. Yeah. And especially, I think even the kind of like the LA life that you were living as privileged as it was, it's now easy. I mean, it's kind of like when models are like, modeling is actually hard and people laugh. Like, I I get it. Like, it's it's not easy. Um, And it's it's a lot of emotional bandwidth. And I think this kind of veil that you you have to put on more so than maybe other communities. And what I mean by veil is like this sort of image of – perfection and happiness and having all things together. Like that's exhausting mentally and emotionally. Oh my goodness. It so is. And you're right. I live in the capital of presenting. (laughs) I live in the performative capital of the world, maybe. Yeah. Maybe Dubai. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. 
exactly. And I'm assuming it, it it also wasn't easy whether you were conscious of this or not. I'm assuming you were like being again the only one in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, probably one of only very few black women in your circle in your community. A hundred percent. I this was the other layer of my story, um, which is incidentally why I wrote the story because every time I looked, and you know this, every book on recovery from one of kind of like the big people in recovery are written by white people. Mm-hmm. It's usually mm-hmm. white women. Um, but there are mm-hmm. a few a few white men um podcasting, like everything about re- that's geared toward recovery. Every book that I could find, everything was was written by or hosted by white people. And for me, because I come from this place of privilege, like like you said, there, I, I have a lot of access and resources that a lot of other people don't have, but I'm also Black. Mm-hmm. And so seeing the need for me in my community um, that I had set up in the school that I went to, which where I was a, a definite minority as a parent where my kids were minorities. Uh one Miles, my my older son, he was one of he he never had a black classmate until fourth grade. Wow. And so this was what I was up against, but it's representing black excellence is what it comes down to. There is a a, a task that when you are the only one in the room, or when I'm the only one in the room, I'll say mm-hmm. I feel put upon to represent all black people. Mm-hmm. And so if I am the black addict mom, then this is a generalization that might be put on the next one or the ones that are already there might be, you know, it's, it's, it may be false, but because it's been true in so many other areas, I carry it like a truth. So that, that other layer of not seeing myself reflected back. Um, in all these different communities that I was a part of was really challenging. I'm used to it. Mm-hmm. That's how I grew up, but it's still really challenging. And so this extra added layer of shame for me, I, I just really had to work extra hard to make sure, you know, they it's called the black tax, right? We have to work twice as hard to get half as far. Women have the same thing, but I'm mm-hmm. I'm black and a woman. Right. So it's you know, double the recipe for me. <laughs> so yeah, that's that's what that was like for me. That extra layer. Yeah. Extra heavy layer. Yeah. I, I imagine this is sort of off topic, but I just I can't thought of thought of it is that, you know, when you feel that pressure to as a black woman, like be the kind of like representative, mm-hmm. I imagine that white people almost demand that of you. Because we, like in our own ignorance and fragility, we like certainty. I, all humans do. But it's like, I, I make up that we look at the only one in the room, you being, you know, the, the, the only black mom among all white people. We want that certainty and we want you to be, we want you to speak for all yeah. black women. Yeah. I make up that that's, that's a thing, but I imagine that it, that it could be. In the majority of my encounters, I find that to be true. Mm-hmm. I think there's some safety in that for for people. And if I'm okay, then they're okay and black people are okay too. So that mm-hmm. they can, you know, people can kind of put down their protest signs for a little bit. Yeah. It's like, look, Laura's fine and she's especially here. if you have it all together, like you're yes. beautiful, you know, like you 
Yeah. <laughs> That's making white people happy. And thank you for that, by the way. <laughs> yeah. But but yeah, it's um there's there's a dance. There's mm-hmm. a dance that, you know, you uh, the music doesn't even have to be playing and you you're doing it anyway because it's out of habit. And for yeah. me, it was out of fear. You know, sure. if I stop dancing, what will I be? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Even like if the music shuts off and yes. it's quiet and everyone's staring at me. Right. Yeah. Okay. So I have this list of questions that I was, I was writing down. Can we talk about doctor shopping? Because yeah. I don't know if I've ever had this conversation with someone. I think, feel like I was lucky in that I didn't, because what sometimes I, you know, I identify as an addict and people were like, oh, what was your drug of choice? And, and I always say it was, you know, it was men and booze. I feel like I just got lucky in that because I loved benzos. Like mm. I, if given the opportunity, I can have my hands over. I my know heart. you're, you're just, like oh, with such reverence, the caress, <laughs> the 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 dulling of the edges. Mm. Isn't a, isn't Valium in that? Oh class? Yeah. yeah. Okay, Valium. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> let's talk I about Valium, Andrea. <laughs> we just did it. This 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 episode is sponsored by <laughs> Valium. <laughs> the letter B. Dull the edges. I don't know if if it's a certain type of person. I just feel like the anxious, which I think 95% of people listening to this show right now have their hand raised. When you have anxiety, Valium, and same with Percocet. I got a prescription for Percocet after I had my second child. And so I was not sober yet, Mm. but I was also well enough aware that I had issues, some issues, like the, the whispers were starting. And I had a very easy vaginal birth with her and they prescribed me Percocet. Yeah. I was like, why? <laughs> Yum. But I remember um, I took it as prescribed because I had some some bruising, she said, and I probably didn't need it. And then I, the next day I felt so much better. And then I was like, but I have a headache and I didn't have a headache yeah. and I took it anyway. And I, I am so thankful that I had the wherewithal to have that intuition of, you actually don't have a headache. You just mm-hmm. wanted to take the Percocet. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. And I threw him down the toilet. And a moment of just sheer divine guidance threw them down the toilet. And I'm 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 kind of grateful for that prescription and that experience mm-hmm. of like having this baby. And I had a toddler at the time, my son was two, because that could have gone in an entirely different direction. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But I was drinking, you know, so I had that. But I, too, liked to combine benzos and booze. In my opinion, alcohol is a drug. Mm -hmm. I think it affects our body exactly the same way. It's just legal and it's liquid. And um, so I think... Widely accepted. Yeah, I I consider myself... I say alcoholic because I'm asked to, but I just... I think it's all-encompassing. And um, but But doctor shopping... Mm-hmm. Yes, please. Uh, which I think is one of my chapters. I think one of my chapters yes, is called Doctor Shopping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so basically, what what this is is for someone like me who didn't want to get their drugs from a drug dealer or from the black market, which was so. This was, of course, this was two thousand eight. Not as easy to find things on the internet as it is now. I, I understand okay. now you can get everything. You, obviously, you can walk into a marijuana dispensary and get what you sure. want as well. But back then, it was really like a few dark sites and a doctor or a dealer. 
okay. were your choices. And uh, I didn't know any dealers and I didn't want to go down that road. That just didn't seem like it would be becoming of mm-hmm. someone in my position. <laughs> Okay. I was going to ask you like, what was really the reason? Okay. So it was, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, it was a class issue. Right. (laughs) Well, I was like, how would I even find one? Like whoever I asked, I would be afraid that they might tell somebody. They might out you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I didn't, I didn't know anybody. And, and the people that I kind of ran in circles with, they weren't like me. Like they would definitely have a drink every once in a while. Maybe there'd be a Xanax here and there, but mm-hmm. but nobody that was over imbibing anything that I could okay. have been like, okay, they might be, you know. Nobody like like told a funny story about doing coke in the nineties or anything. Like, for sure, for sure. But back that then, for them. <laughs> yeah, back then, but not at that time when we were all like young with young kids. Nobody okay. was talking about that kind of thing. Got it. Okay, so. The idea was, and this was again before they really started checking, like right now, if you get a prescription for a narcotic, it's in the system. Mm-hmm. And there's this, you can't really, you can't get away with it. You can't have more yeah. than one doctor prescribe you anything because the system catches it. But back then it would kind of be up to the doctor to catch it. So the doctor that was prescribing me one thing would have to talk to my OBGYN who was prescribing me one thing and would have had to have a conversation with the, I'm trying to think of who else I went to. I went to oh an orthopedist who was prescribing me one thing, right? So I went in with like kind of a fake back injury to one guy. Mm-hmm. Um, he did not prescribe me Vicodin, which is what I was looking for at the time. But he did, he asked me if I was sleeping well. And asked me if I needed anything. At the time, I didn't, I wasn't taking Ambien regularly. So I kind of like set it aside. But my my regular doctor who prescribed me Ambien, um, he decided to taper me at some point. I write about that in the book. He sees that I'm refilling it too fast, the prescription he gave me. And he's and it's been reported, which means he could be in trouble. He could lose his okay. license. Mm-hmm. for prescribing it to me or over-prescribing it to me. Mm-hmm. So he says, we're going to get you off of this. He's really kind about it, but I feel like my world is ending. It's a personal attack. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. I took it very personally. So I decided to seek out other sources and went back to that orthopedist. Basically, I tried to just get them to prescribe it for me over the phone. They wouldn't. But I knew because he was, he had been referred to me by my regular doctor. If I went to see him for an Ambien prescription, he would then, it would be sent over to my regular doctor. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't risk that. So I ended up going to one of those dark sites and, you know, I had been looking at it for weeks. I could get a 300 bottle, 300, yeah, bottle of a 300 pill bottle of Ambien on this dark site not brand name from some other country. And I have no idea what you're taking. I, yeah. No idea. When you get desperate. Yeah. And risk it. it came uh, and it lasted me. It lasted me a month. I don't even think it lasted me a month. I was taking 300 pills. Yeah. Like 10 a day or more at that point. So you started taking them earlier and earlier in the day. Yes. Just to feel normal. Yeah. Yeah. But not stay awake. That was a lot of, um, you know, I was, that was my amateur pharmacist period where I was trying to figure out which dosage, like a half here would get me through breakfast and tennis. And then 
maybe there could be a little bit more for a nap or maybe I I would not if I had to like lead a parent association meeting, I couldn't be loaded at all. So mm-hmm. I would just endure those hours and then really look forward to the six or so that I would take starting at bedtime. I would always wake up. I would wake up and take more during the night. So I would wake mm-hmm. up when it wore off. So that ended up being, you know, probably six during the night. Oh my gosh, the hell that that must have been for you. If you like to consume podcasts, which I'm assuming that you do because you're here, if you do, I think you would love audiobooks if you have not found them already. Audible has a free trial. You can try it for 30 days for $0, and then you can get two free audiobooks with Premium Plus. All three of my books are over there on Audible, 52 Ways to Live a Kick-Ass Life, How to Stop Feeling Like Shit, and Make Some Noise, plus most of the books I recommend here on this show and my guests' books are over there as well. After 30 days, you get one audiobook a month for $14.95 a month, and you receive 30% off the price of additional audiobook purchases, and you can cancel at any time. Easy peasy. Your books are yours to keep even if you cancel. Go to andreaowen.com slash audible to sign up for your free trial. That's andreaowen.com slash audible. I wanted to point out something and I want to have have time too to talk about your recovery as well. When I explain to people about the mind obsession that for many of us, it's not the quantity that we're consuming, whether it's pills or booze or whatever, it's the obsession. And so I'm, I'm assuming that when you're in that PTO meeting, when you're leading the PTO meeting, there is a tape playing in the back of your mind of like looking at the clock and like seeing how much more time you have to endure this meeting so that you can go home and like take the pills that you want. And then if if one more goddamn person raises their hand to ask a question, like meeting adjourned. Yes. Like that, that mind obsession is the fucking worst. Right. You're never present. No. For what's going on. Never, never. Mm -hmm. And the thank you for bringing that up because it's so true. And I mean, I'm still never without a watch. But I could never be without a watch then because everything was timed down mm-hmm. to the minute. And I had a, you know, the campus was kind of up in the hills for my kids' school with gates and security guards and blah, blah, blah. Like I had a secret way out. So I didn't have to see anybody after I finished one of those. So nobody could stop you in the parking lot to talk to you about something else at the school. <laughs> exactly. Because you know how it is. At, yes. At the I'm on the PTO. <laughs> yes. And everybody stops you and it's a nice chit chat yeah. and blah, blah, yeah. blah. But like when your insides are on fire, mm-hmm. it's the worst thing in the world. It's like, and I can't believe that people didn't see it. They probably just thought it was rude, you know? <laughs> yeah. Like, well, it's like the way I describe it too. It's like, I'm like, imagine having like low grade diarrhea all the time. Yes. <laughs> and like, you can't think of anything else right. except getting to the bathroom. Right. Like you just, it's always in the back of your mind. You're just like sweating. Like, oh my God, how much longer is this person going to talk? Like, can I, can I excuse myself without being rude? I'm going to have to cut them off eventually. And like, just this constant tape playing of yeah. when can I get away from this? this conversation, this um, meeting, like whatever it is, this bedtime routine. All of it. All of it was Mm -hmm. everything got in the way of what I needed to do to take care of myself. Everything. Yeah. And at the end, that included my children, which is why it was the end for me. You know, the first time I ever heard that, that kind of 
image was my, my dad got sober when I was 18 mm-hmm. and I didn't, you know, I was very young. My parents divorced and the woman that he remarried was like cousins or second cousins with this boy that liked me in high school who was a year younger than me. Uh-huh. And so my stepmother was kind of joking with my dad. You know, my dad had been sober at this point. And she's, and he said, my stepmother said to my dad, I bet it was hard for you uh, being Andrea's dad and having so many boys come over and, you know, trying to date her. And my dad said, they were always just in the way of my beer. Yeah. And I remember, and I was in, you know, my twenties then. And I remember thinking, really? Like I had no idea that that was like constantly what he was thinking about was drinking, that it was not that his teenage daughter, like right. it probably was painful for him, but he just was like, so focused. Yes. And it's a universal feeling, I think, for people who are struggling. Yeah. And I think that it, again, it goes beyond substances. It could be whatever mm-hmm. you're obsessing about. Substances definitely for me were like a ticking clock inside me. There was a physical response to when they wore off that made mm-hmm. the obsession, that made the obsession gear up, I guess, made it stronger, made it, made me have to focus more on mm-hmm. the obsession. Mm-hmm. But it could be, you know, almost anything. It could be shopping. It could be gambling. Work. It could be work. It could be working out. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be food. It, it's, I mean, I mean, obviously it could be food because food is also, I consider to be a yeah. drug and sugar. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So, but all of these things um, can get in the way yeah. of really like looking around and enjoying your life because you're so hyper-focused on this one thing that can, it's a fix, right? Mm -hmm. I thought I'd get a fix. I did get a fix. Mm -hmm. And and your fixes looked different than my fixes, Mm -hmm. but they were still fixes. Yeah. Depends on the season. Yeah. For me, it was a dependent <laughs> season in my life and what was accessible. Right. So when did you have like kind of the moment of clarity or was there like an intervention? Like, tell us, you know, don't spoil it for people that want to read the book, but like what happened where you found yourself in another state? Right after I opened the book, I, I write about having these grand wall seizures that uh, were withdrawal seizures. I, I was completely clean for a week. Mm-hmm. Um, not by choice. I had just run out of everything. And and then I had these seizures that the doctors, um, after they examined me, said that they were abrupt cessation of Ambien and lack of sleep. Because without the Ambien, I couldn't sleep. Mm-hmm. That was the other thing is like rebound oh. insomnia is what they call it. So it's like the thing that helped you to sleep now keeps you up. Um, so yeah. you need more of it. And so that could have been my bottom. If I'm reading my book, I think, oh, that's it. Mm-hmm. He's going to now, this is, you know, this is that's really dangerous. Yeah, yeah. Very mm-hmm. serious, life-threatening. This will you be- have two her- young children. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and this very big, beautiful life that mm-hmm. I could just get taken out of. But um, my bottom was actually a few months later on the 4th of July of 2008. And basically- my kids wanted to go see the fireworks and I sent them with a neighbor because I was in withdrawal and I needed to knock myself out. I couldn't knock myself out. Because you didn't have anything. I had something, but it wasn't enough. It okay. wasn't enough. It worked for an hour and then it was it was gone. And that was everything I had. 
everything I had stashed away at that moment I had taken and it didn't work. My kids got back and I went into mommy mode and I put them to bed and I cried and cried and cried because I knew this meant I had to tell my then husband I was going to have to find a place to go because clearly the seizures had indicated that I could not do this by myself. I would need to be Mm -hmm. medically detoxed. Yeah. And that meant leaving my kids, which I had never done before. I was, boy, I would have done anything not to leave them, you know, Mm -hmm. anything in the world to avoid leaving them and anything to avoid the detox that was in front of me. And I did for that whole time. I had Mm -hmm. avoided leaving them and avoided that detox. But uh, at that moment, I knew that it was over for me. If I couldn't get high anymore, if I couldn't, if I couldn't get even just a modicum of what I needed in order to show up for my life, then it was over for me. I needed to go get help. Did you know at that point that like it was like the whole gig was up? Like, no, because I know that some people, when they reach that point, they're like, okay, I need to quit the pills and the benzos. And, but I'm going to, I'm going to need to like drink some wine you know, to like take this edge off. Yeah. Did you know, or did you have that rude awakening? I mean, the the thing for me is I rarely drank unless it mm-hmm. was with, to boost the pills. I, I didn't mm-hmm. really like alcohol. It hadn't been my thing before. I was not somebody who woke up hungover from booze a lot. I just mm-hmm. like, I was definitely, pills were my thing. To drink without taking pills just it wouldn't have made sense to me. So when I, when I was surrendering that, I, yeah, I figured everything, but it wasn't like I was giving up one thing at a time. I was just giving Mm -hmm. up everything because it all went together. One didn't work without the other for me. I know I've left like hardly any time to talk about your recovery. Maybe I'll just selfishly have to bring you on for part two, but Ah. (laughs) I wanted to focus on the story because I think the story of just pills in general that are prescribed and that it's it's sort of like, I don't want to say it's this quintessential kind of um, cliche story, but it's just, it's an important one to hear because I think that so many of us do such a great job of covering it up. Right. There might be people listening who are either kind of starting to slow dance with it Mm -hmm. or are in full like dirty dancing. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I just, I wanted to make sure that we had someone on who, who told that story. So thank you. Thank you. Thank for you sharing for that. It. Yeah. What do you think? I mean, can you sum up in like a few minutes, like <laughs> the last decade plus of, of your recovery? Like maybe a better question is like, did you welcome it? Did you kind of go kicking and screaming? Like what were those first, like minus the physical withdrawals? Cause I'm sure that's a whole story in and of itself. When you were like sitting in these group meetings in, in recovery or, you know, one-on-one with the therapist, like, did you, did you know? Like I need to like go full on into this or were you still kind of holding back? Like, what was that like? Um, Thank you for asking that too. That, I mean, I felt sentenced. I sat in okay. those recovery rooms and those therapist office or in my therapist office and I felt sentenced to be there. I felt- A little bit of a chip on your shoulder kind ooh, of thing. Oh, yes. Yes. Yeah. Very much a chip on my shoulder. I I understood that I would had had to give these things up to give up the the pills, to give up the booze, but I really didn't want to do what everybody else had done to get there. I just, I thought that was, I didn't want to join anything. 
I'm, you know, a join, I'm not a joiner. And I, I just didn't believe what in what I was seeing therapeutically or in the re- rooms of recovery. And, and I, I once again was the only one in the room. I saw mm-hmm. no other black people, men or women in my recovery meetings. And so that tells me, you know, two things. One, maybe this isn't for us, mm-hmm. right? Maybe this isn't the way that that we get sober because no one's here. And plus, I'm sure all the staff. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everybody. Oh, and where I went to treatment, 100%. I was the only Black mm-hmm. person there. There was one other staff person there. I write about him. His name is Clarence. Shout out to him. <laughs> Uh, he was, he was lovely and it was really nice to see someone else, but you know, he worked, he was a tech, he worked the night shift, but he wasn't another Mm -hmm. patient and, and, you know, and then getting out of there and then, and then kind of going to do, I have, I was, you know, at the tail end of my divorce. So my divorce attorney strongly suggested that I go to meetings, that I go to therapy, that I look as involved in my recovery as I possibly could. And I needed receipts. I needed evidence of that. So I did it very reluctantly at first. And then, you know, what, what happened was at some point, probably after the first year, I, when I didn't have to go anymore, I found myself going. And then, you know, someone asked me to look at that, this recovery work with them and help them through it. And that, was kind of like, what, me? And then I started helping this woman through the work and finding myself more in in the literature and in in the shares that I heard and really making incredible progress with my therapist. I I loved her. Um at the end oh, she ended good. up moving around moving around, moving away. But mm-hmm. I just adored her and she helped me so much to see that my issue wasn't the drugs or the alcohol that it was living inauthentically and that once I could discover who I was and begin to live in that way, owning what I liked, owning what I didn't like, um, doing things that were okay for me, saying no when it wasn't. Um, You talk a lot about that. Mm -hmm. Um, Speaking up for myself instead of just shying away or being quiet. I was a very, I was very passive um, before I got sober about, I was, you know, inside I was all fire, but if, if there were a confrontation, I would, and I thought that I might be perceived as, um, a troublemaker or less than, or whatever it is by my authentic response, I wouldn't, I wouldn't offer it. And Mm -hmm. so she, she really taught me to, to be that. And I lost people in my life because of that, um, because they, they had signed up for the other Laura and they weren't, they weren't quite as sure about this one. And that's just the way it went. You know, <laughs> I wish that people could have seen you right there. So Laura did a little attitude, <laughs> a little, um, little, little head nod there, but it did, it, you know, it's, it's, you can't take everyone with you Mm-mm. and, and nor did I want to, it turns out. So living authentically is giving me life. And it costs me, but I'm absolutely willing to pay that price. Yeah. Thank you for for summing it up. So you credit the 12 steps. I do. Okay. 
I do. As as do I. Yeah. At least for those first few years. Yeah. Is that one? Of, there's so many good sayings that come from those rooms. Is that one of them? You can't take everyone with you. I don't know. <laughs> it should be. It should be. Maybe it's not. I'm going to start it. Yes. Robbins. Yeah. I'll post that today later on. <laughs> it, that's a great social media post. Like, yeah. You can't take everyone with you. Mm-hmm. And I think that for some of us, I think that that walk into recovery, whether it's, you know, whatever their, their drug of choice was for many of us. And this was my experience. Like we started out as the truth tellers in our lives and we're tamped down. Yeah. You no. Know, and just like, no, we don't talk about those things. Like whether it was your religion you grew up in or your family system or your community or your circle of friends, you know, the community that you built there in LA. And I felt like a, this is very much in retrospect. I felt like a prisoner in my own body, you know? And like, I knew mm. it was very clear that people didn't like outspoken girls. Yes. And then when you grow up and, you know, you are kind of the black sheep of the family, the one who tells the truth and, and, and oftentimes like scapegoated. And I say all this because I want to just acknowledge for people, the pain and grief that comes with not being able to take everyone with you. Yeah. No, it's, it's real. I, I, I'm, I'm stopping myself from filling my eyes, filling with tears because I have two friends, dear friends that, you know, we're just not that close anymore. They're still in my life, Mm -hmm. but we were like peas and carrots and we're not. And it's a direct impact of, you know, one of certainly of the way that I lived before that, because that was not friend friendly the way that I was living. It was very isolated by myself, stay at an arm's distance. But the the change that I had to make, the changes I had to make, and or the changes I chose to make in order to have the freedom that I do now, those friendships are no longer a good fit. And it's it's sad. It's sad. Mm-hmm. I have amazing friendships now. Some of them are new. Some of them are are the same ones I've had since I was like in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. I also have Scotty, who was mm-hmm. uh, um I know I was gonna ask about him, but I'm like, but then it's I know it's a, a whole story. Like- it's a whole story. <laughs> but I met a guy in rehab the hour I checked in and which they tell you not to do. <laughs> which they tell you not to do. Rules. We weren't a hookup there, but I that That's was good. not because of me. I would have liked to have been. And but we are still together 14 years later, 14 mm-hmm. plus years later. And I was never anything but my authentic self with him because I wasn't trying to impress him. I didn't okay. think I'd ever see him again. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was some white guy from Utah who's outdoorsman. Mm-hmm. What? He's, you know, he's one of the first people I got to practice being authentic with. And take that risk. Yeah. The book is Stash, My Life in Hiding. And they nailed the cover. Like, yes! I, I don't care. I don't care what any, I sent Laura a text when I got it in the mail because I'm lucky enough to get a, an advanced copy and mm. I gasped when I opened it up. I don't care what anyone says, covers matter. Covers matter. Well, look at your covers. They're all they're <laughs> all gorgeous. They all are. Yeah. Great. And it just, it matters so much and it just really is beautiful. I get so emotional and just, I get all up in my feels when people that I know and even women that I don't know tell their story out loud of recovery and show all of the broken parts of themselves. Mm. Cause I know how complicated that is Yeah, yeah. to put it on paper. And I don't know if this was your experience, but like 
the shame I feel still like writing about these, like what I call ugly parts of myself, like these horrible like mistakes that I've made and these choices that I've made where I'm just like, oh my God. But it's the universal human experience. It is. And it this is an addiction memoir, but it's about so much more as well. Uh-huh. And the feelings that I have around everything that I'm doing, I think that's the universal part. And because it is, it is so complicated being who I am in this world, being a mom, being black, being, you know, someone who was in a long-term marriage and who is now in a long-term divorce. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, and, and still maintaining, you know, a relationship with my ex-husband that is really good for our kids still. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. you know, all these things are so much work, but there's, there's so much, I feel like when I tell my story, not just in the rooms of recovery, but people can connect to different parts of it. Like, oh, I'm, I don't connect with the addiction part, but I certainly know what it's like to be, be in your life and not feel and feel like it's performative or feel like you're doing yeah. it to please other people or, or that fear, you know, that, that drove me to distance myself from making noise, you know, mm-hmm. or, you know, just anything that that would have called attention to myself in the wrong, what I felt like was the wrong way. Yeah. Andrea, I, I want to thank you so much for for having me on to talk about it. Your your podcast, my my friends who listen to your podcast are really impressed that I know you. <laughs> Thank you. And so they're going to be impressed once again that I'm on here for a third time. What is it called? Hat trick. (laughs) Yes. The hat trick. Yes. Mm -hmm. I'm very proud to have been brought on as a guest and I really appreciate you. And I, not just for bringing me on, but for everything that you do and who you've represented and, and the way that you've opened, like, I feel like there's a window on your life that we've all got to peep through and see how you're doing and see how you handle things because of your openness. And that's been so helpful to me. So I just want to thank you. Thank you so much. I'm going to, I'm going to take that in. And like I said, it's, I've always, even as a child wanted to open the window yeah. and I also wanted to look in other people's windows Yes, because I'm like, I know you have to be like me, Yeah, <laughs> but nobody's yeah. fucking talking about it. Exactly. So here I am. And I my mom, my mom gets uncomfortable about some stuff. And I'm like, I'm making up for last time, mom. <laughs> sorry, not sorry. It's true. To do. It's yeah. true. I love your hair. I know that we talked about that. But <gasps> Thank you. I just love hair. it. I just love it. Keep showing it. Keep posting. Yeah, it's getting yes. long. It's getting longer. I have only about like a year. So Laura and I are recording this in what is it? December, 2022. Yeah. I think by like late summer, 2023, it's going to be totally grown out. I have oh, yeah. know, about six inches or so. And you just have, we talked about this too. You have great hair genes. You have fabulous hair. I do. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not going to deny that. <laughs> I will take that compliment. Agree it's with awesome. you. I, again, thank you to my mother yes. for those great hair genes that I passed on to my, my two children, but <sighs> just please everybody get the book. Thank Even you. if you don't identify as an addict or who've ever struggled. It's a great fucking story. <laughs> like it's it's entertaining and it's a page turner. Um, it's called Stash My Life in Hiding. Of course, the link will be in the show notes. Thank you again, Laura, for being here. And and everyone, thank you for listening, for giving your time to Laura and and me today. And remember, it's our life's journey to make ourselves better humans and our life's responsibility to make the world a better place. Bye for now. 
Hey, did you know there's free secret podcast episodes waiting for you that are not part of my regular podcast feed? Yes. AndreaOwen.com slash free. And you just sign up. You get a link sent to you. It's very secret. It's like a secret club. We don't have a secret handshake. Don't worry about that. But it's these motivating podcast episodes that I made for you. They're under 20 minutes each. There's three of them. They're for wherever you are in your life. So head on over there and grab them. They range from really supporting you and seeing you where you are and being compassionate all the way to giving you a giant kick in your ass and telling you how amazing and gorgeous and phenomenal you are. So andreaowen.com slash free and get your hands on that free podcast feed.